0: Today on the podcast, we're talking about productivity. More specifically, we're having a conversation about the productivity principles that we can learn from the world of manufacturing. My guest is Ishan Galapati, and he says that solving your day-to-day chaos isn't what improves year-on-year performance. I give him a call to talk all about it. Joining me on the phone is Ishan Galapati. He is an author and productivity expert with a wealth of knowledge. He's worked across six countries for nearly two decades, including two large and multinationals where he was involved in developing a global supply chain excellence program. He is renowned for his simplifying techniques around productivity and he works with manufacturing businesses primarily to move from chaos to excellence through productivity improvement programs and frontline leadership development programs. When he's not working, you'll find him in the backyard playing cricket with his sons or sipping a cup of coffee with his wife. Ishan, welcome to Phone Calls to Clever People.
1: Oh, well, thank you, Shane. And what wonderful times uh, to be joining and talking about um, productivity.
0: Yeah, I'm really (laughs) looking forward to this conversation. We we cross paths. Um, was it last year, maybe in the middle of lockdown, we were doing a a video course together. We've kind of been in each other's orbit for a little while through kind of mutual circles, but we ended up in a program together um, about kind of getting better on video. And and I got to learn a whole lot more about you that I didn't know about you um, kind of from the distance. And so I've been looking forward to kind of introducing you to the people in my world, because um, I think you're exceptional at what you do. And so before we jump into our conversation, um, let's start with some fast facts. So where were you born? What was your first job? And then what do you do now?
1: Yes, well, um, the first one's very easy. Um, I was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka. So that's that small, uh, tiny little island south of India that's got the same population as Australia, uh, wow. crammed into an island that's smaller than Tasmania. Um, and I came here about 25 years ago, uh, to do my undergrad. Um, the first job I had, uh, well, the definition of job, um, <laughs> if that means that I provided a service and got, uh, paid, um, it'll have to be when I was in my late teens in Sri Lanka. I was a photographer and I was fortunate enough to own, uh, thanks to my parents, um, a Nikon SLR, not a digital, digital didn't exist back then. So there's a real deal uh, SLR camera. And um, I did events uh, for my friends and family and anybody else you know, who had birthdays, engagement parties or whatever. Um, and I earned a decent quid. Um, they paid you at- for it.
0: Your family members paid you to come and do fo- do photography.
1: Well, well, family, yeah, well, family as in kind of extended family, not my immediate family. But uh, yeah, that was my, well, it was kind of a hobby that actually, you know, gave me a good income, I guess. Um, But if it's a job as in a, you know, um, a proper job, it'll be my, um, during my university days, I was working at Kmart. And that was the real, first real (laughs) job. Uh, what do I do now? Well, I, um, after two decades of working with um, multinationals and in the manufacturing sector predominantly, uh, I work with mid-tier manufacturing businesses, Shane, and I help them to go from what I call chaos to excellence. Um, and I think that kind of resonates with most of the um, most of the people in my sector. Mm. Now, Shane, I know there's not going to be many manufacturers, um, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> hey, there may be listening, but um, I just want to, um, uh, you know, put it out there that a lot of the concepts that um, we've applied in manufacturing, that have been born from manufacturing, are actually applied um, in service sectors. Uh, so banks uh, are well into this, uh, healthcare and hospitals well into this. So um, I might be talking about manufacturing examples, um, but I'm sure the listeners would be able to apply the thinking and the concepts. Into any uh, what more sectors, let's say.
0: Yeah, I agree. I I've got a friend who is working in uh, in manufacturing, and he he does. Uh, I think the, the 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 huge trucks here at Australia. They do truck manufacturing, and yeah. I went and did a tour on the floor um, at his factory, and he's in HR, and he just walked me through what they do there, and I was like the the learning and the ideas and the principles that can come out of this are so broadly applicable and so yes manufacturing but today the conversation i'm sure is going to be really helpful for people across the board i'm interested Mm. to know like what what kind of took you into the manufacturing route like why did you go through that pathway did you kind of stumble into it did you choose to go into it
1: uh yeah pretty much just uh fell into it um so i i was studying um aeronautical engineering well i started doing aeronautical engineering um, but then swapped to do mechatronics engineering halfway through at University of New South Wales. Uh, So mechatronics is mechanical and electronics, so the world of robotics and automation. And as part of the four-year course, you have to go and do, I think it was 30 or 60 days of industrial experience. And I saw this little job advert uh, for one summer um, in one summer where they wanted a student to come and do some work. Now I didn't know what that business was and what they wanted, but I knew that I had to get my 30 days of industrial experience. So I applied and it happened to be a business manufacturing aluminum windows and doors. Mm-hmm. Now this was just before Sydney Olympic time. So I think around 97, 98. Um, and the problem this business had was it was growing, um, at at great knots because obviously the housing market back at back then was as crazy as it is back now, well, right now. Mm. So um, the factory had to produce a lot more. Um, it was growing, so the operations manager wanted to basically improve productivity, and I was the guy who was brought in to give him a hand to do some of the projects, the initiatives, the research, and, and talk to the people and understand their frustration. So that's how I actually start, uh, got into it. I mean, fascinating in terms of um,
0: your journey. I want to ask so much about yeah. the the engineering side of the conversation, but we're not going to go there for now. Right. Uh, I'm interested to know, um, obviously, coming into this productivity space and seeing uh, if I was to see an industry where it was, would be most visible in terms of the, the benefit and the outcome of, of high productivity, it would be an area like manufacturing. And so, like, if you were to kind of look at the landscape, let's not just talk about manufacturing. What do you think most people um, are challenged with or, or are having issues with when it comes to an area like productivity?
1: Yeah, there are there are many areas, um, Shane, but before I just answer your question, I just want to give a quick example of how some of this thinking has been applied to um, non-manufacturing sector. Mm. Um, I was doing a small assignment with New South Wales Ambulance um, uh, early in my consulting career, and I was talking to some of the people who were early at the time um, in their projects of designing these New new South Wales ambulance mega centers. So it's, it's got a hub and spoke model that they operate out of now. And one of the things that um, uh, one of the project members were talking about was how they had incorporated the concept of turning around ambulances after coming back from hospital, back to the, the, um, the main ambulance center. How do you literally and metaphorically turn it around so that it's ready to go out whenever the next triple O call comes, um, comes in? So that thinking comes from in the manufacturing of how do you change over from manufacturing product A to product B? So manufacturers know that dead time in their factory while the machines and the people are getting, re- you know, changing over. And getting ready to start making the next product so we we go through a systematic way of reducing that time now that thinking was brought over to how do you change over and and turn around from being not ready to to ready to go out for the next um uh, the next uh, emergency mm. so yeah so that's how easily uh, it can be translated but talking about you know this this productivity and one of the main issues um, that I see um, many take the approach of cost cutting as a way of improving productivity. Let's face it, um, productivity and improving performance. We all want to improve the bottom line of the businesses. That's what this is about, mm-hmm. right? Yes, making it easier for the people. Um, but by making it easier, we want to get more done, and and by that we want to be able to do more uh, grow the business more but also be more profitable Mm. but the route many people take is the cost cutting approach and as soon as you say it's cost cutting um it's it's typically looking at your pnl the profit and loss statement and you're cutting your training budget you're cutting the overtime you're cutting the color copying costs, um, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so it, it, it's got that shrinking feeling, and it, you know, it's, it's not a pleasant environment, and it's not an environment that's enjoyable. Um, and, and people feel, right, you know, who's next, you know, are, are the jobs um, going to get uh, taken out? Mm. Whereas the best of the best, and I've seen, I've been fortunate enough to see some of the world class manufacturing companies, the approach they take is a cost reduction. Now, it's not just a play on words, but the cost reduction approach, chain is a very different one. It's where you identify where some of the opportunities might be, because let's face it, not all good ideas or opportunities to improve performance are coming through to the, uh, the, the P&L, and I'll give you an example um, in, in, a, in a moment. So by engaging your employees to identify Um, opportunities beyond what you would typically see in a profit and loss is what world-class companies do. And by doing that, they find you involve the people, you engage the people, um, and then you strategically um, would deploy and um, execute projects to then unlock those constraints or benefit from those ideas which flow through to um, the, the, the bottom line straight away. And, and this is how world-class companies do it year after year. Um, mm. Now, to go back to that um, example that I was talking about. So I used to um, work for um, one of the multinationals, uh, you know, fairly recognized uh, biscuit manufacturer in Australia. I was uh, looking after um, a line that was making, um, you know, yeast-based uh, biscuits. And this particular biscuit had cheese sprinkled on top. Uh, pecorino cheese, which is fairly expensive. Now, where the cheese sprinkler was positioned, um, there was a bit of waste because you're sprinkling the cheese right across the door sheet um, because it's going through a, a sheet before it gets cut and goes into the oven. If I looked at the PNL as the manufacturing manager back then, as long as we used the right amount of cheese and we ran at the right speeds, um, I would say well done to my team because right. we ran to the standard but in one of my walkingabouts in the factory i was talking to this operator and we ended up talking about the cheese sprinkler and this operator told me ishan if we had you know can we move the cheese sprinkler from where it is now to this position here and by doing that yes we're sprinkling across the cheese all the way but uh, there's a system of recovering some of the excess cheese that we sprinkled that would otherwise you know that's currently getting wasted um, now it required, you know, twenty thousand dollars because we needed a new sprinkler. Um, you know, it was a trickier spot to get into, so we implemented that project. Shane, the outcome of that was um, n- nearly three hundred thousand dollars worth of savings that fell right through wow. because we were recovering, right? So no. Um, the, the quality wasn't um, affected. it was still the same biscuit. Uh, there were even other, other fringe benefits of ergonomics and handling, um, et cetera, etc. Cetera. Now that idea would not have come if I was sitting in my office just looking at the PL. Um, I would have been talking to my team saying, well, we need to cut overtime or you know we need to you know reduce the waste or whatever. Um, but that's the power of engaging operators or engaging your team to identify um, areas to improve.
0: Mm, I like this because I think when, when we go to the um, the idea of cost cutting, everybody who is subject or feels victim to cost cutting feels like they're a victim to something else. Whereas this idea of involving other people and working out how could we collaboratively reduce costs says we you might see something that we can't, you might have a perspective to bring that we, um, we're we not seeing that collaboratively we could actually shape the way that we do things um, moving forward, which which is again, like it seems really simple and straightforward that you would include people in the process um, and, and not just sit in an office and look at, you know, some of the things that need to happen from there.
1: Yes, absolutely. And uh, I mean, there are many companies, right? You know, 3M is one that's quite famous out there. You know, they have the, I think the, every three months they have a day off where operators get to or, or the employees get to just play and you know just explore ideas and and a lot of software companies um, take the same approach and I think it's that play around be playful um, talk to people and just bounce ideas off um, so that's one approach of just you know just throwing stuff onto a wall and you know, looking at well, what sticks or even if it doesn't stick, which is how the whole post-it notes came about, right? It's the one that didn't stick. Um, yeah. So that's one approach. But the other approach is getting people to identify opportunities through a specific lens. So this is where you can be even a little bit more productive on how do you identify the opportunities to improve. Because let's face it, if you get hundred people into a room and let's say you you know you shut down the, the the normal business and you got everybody into a town hall and you say right, we want ideas now. I think it's Dan Pink, um, the um, who talks about this concept of when you ask people to think you can't think because you freeze mm. so you've got to set the right environment you've got to give people the right context and the lens to look through well you know help us identify real opportunities to be able to do this um, and this is where the manufacturing sector is is good at because it's got a framework um, th- that talks about um, well these are the areas that, um, you're losing productivity on. So look through any process, but go through these kind of ideas. Um, some of it will be fairly obvious and fairly pragmatic, right? So if you're touching a a product or if you're touching a um, process twice, it will be seen as a waste um, because obviously you, you've touched something and you are ha- processing it halfway through and then you're stopping it and then you're picking it up later on. So this is why... Uh, well let's talk about a service sector Um, you know bank for example if you were processing a bank loan it doesn't take I don't know what it takes these days but let's even say 24 hours or you know 48 hours now it doesn't take a bank 48 hours to actually process the full bank loan right it probably takes maybe half an hour if you actually add up all the bits and pieces of person one did this part then went into the queue waiting in the queue for person two to do something, um, et etc. et cetera. So that's why the overall process is long. Um, but you've got to give people the framework. So you've got to um, that educate the people to saying here's where the business is going, look through the lenses, lose the, use the education you have on what is a wasteful task or a wasteful process, identify ideas, That would help us move towards this, you know, the business goal that we have set. So that's how you can be more productive, even when identifying um, ideas involving people
0: yeah and i think this again comes back to this collaborative approach to productivity and getting other people's perspective and input on this there's some things that you don't know whether things are being double handled or if there's dead time in between unless you're involving other people in that conversation and i know you've got a bunch of ideas in terms of uh, i mean you've got a book that you just released which is called advanced 12 um essential steps to supercharge productivity and profitability prof- profitability which is obviously what people are looking for is the converse, is the kind of balance between both um you know, being profitable and also being productive. Um, and in the book, you outline a bunch of these different strategies to help, um, I guess, obviously supercharge productivity um, and lessons from the manufacturing industry that would be helpful across the board. I mean, one of those ones that you touch on the book in the book is around um, problem solving. Can you kind of maybe touch a little bit on that? Because you went on a bit of a journey in the book as well and actually going outside of manufacturing to other experts and getting input from that. Um, do you want to unpack a bit about that kind of chapter specifically?
1: Yeah, i love to, Shane. Um, so the book is pretty much, you know, condensed version of, you know, here's my 20-plus years of lived and learned experiences, um, look, learning from the best of the best. But I've simplified, so my big word is, you know, I want to simplify everything. So the 12 elements uh, essentially create a framework that any business can pick up and implement, and they can start operating like a world-class uh, business um it's got four parts Uh, the second part um, is uh, what i called unlocking the business potential um, and unlocking the constraints. so to be able to unlock you need to identify um, prioritize and then solve the right problems Mm. so they're they're the three chapters that that um, that's in the second part of unlocking so problem solving um, is probably the one that, uh, one that uh, unlocks the biggest uh, constraints that unleashes the biggest potential. The issue, the problem with problem solving <laughs> is that um, many of us are shooting from the hip. Um, so as soon as a problem comes in, we've got five solutions uh, ready to go. Um, and, and that's just the human nature and, and that's just the way it is. But what we learn in in manufacturing is you've got to solve um, complex problems and you've got to solve these complex problems um, in a way um, that um, is structured, is measured, um, and you're solving it objectively. Mm -hmm. Um, So coming up with the ideas is actually not the biggest problem. So what we focus on is let's actually understand what's going on. What is the nature of the problem? Um, because what you see on the surface is not quite what's happening um, right at the below that's causing it and we call this um, you know root cause
0: yeah I remember in in my experience when I was um, training as a counselor it's the same conversation which is the presenting problems very rarely the real real challenge that a person's experiencing you see it in coaching you see it in a bunch of areas where a person comes and they say here's my problem I need you to solve this problem And you go we could solve that problem but if we solve that problem we're not addressing the real issue here
1: absolutely like i mean even even uh, you know conversations uh, with your spouse or the partners and you know the 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 thing that triggers you and people think like oh my god you know and, and you try to address the issue that actually triggered uh, an unpleasant uh, conversation and it's not the thing because it's probably you know something that's yeah happened uh, over and over before but we won't get into that because i'm not an <laughs> expert on <laughs> couples therapy um, but uh, coming to this problem solving and we were having this chat, um, uh, Shane, about how I um, went and interviewed many people for my book. And I'm uh, privileged and I'm fortunate and I'm grateful for all these wonderful people who gave their time to share their stories, um, which have brought light and, and brought the concepts alive in my book. Interesting aside, um, I love the, uh, the TV series uh, Air Crash Investigations. Um, I do too, but
0: I'm also a nervous flyer, which is a really bad combination.
1: Right, right. <laughs> um, now you, I don't know um, so whether you've connected uh, two small dots. Um, so I started doing aeronautical engineering. Um, and I love air crash engine, uh, air crash investigations. So um, the two dots, yes, uh, I love anything to do with aviation. My childhood passion was to become a pilot, but we won't go there. <laughs> um, so I, I watch air crash investigations. Like you know, if I have the time, and if an episode is on, I would watch it. Uh, much to my dis you know the, the dismay of my family, uh, I'd even watch it even before getting on a long haul flight. When I look at how you know, the, the air crash investigators solve these problems, um, it fascinates me because, you know, they can dig up um, the parts of an aircraft, um, you know, from the bottom of a, a, an ocean, and they can find a piece of a wire that's, you know, a centimetre long, um, and they can identify that was the root cause that brought down the whole plane, um, for example. So that fascinates me as to that's a real root cause identification, and, and you know, I tell the people in manufacturing and people I work with, you know, when you draw a fishbone diagram or, you know, you do this 5 Y technique to get to the root cause on a whiteboard in a, in a meeting room, you know, that's nothing compared to what air crash investigators do. So I um, found an air crash investigator, uh, John Cox. He um, has been leading safety in the U.S. for a long time, a big safety um, advocate, and he's led an organization um, that investigated uh, or that stood for air air safety with 600 um, safety officers. So he's been the CEO of that. He's a pilot uh, himself. So I spoke to John Cox, who has been involved with solving the world's longest air crash um, investigation. It took them five years. So this seemingly innocent flight um, from Chicago to Pittsburgh or Pittsburgh to Pennsylvania, it's like a Sydney-Melbourne flight. It's a one-hour flight, um, had about 150 people on board. And as the plane was coming uh, to land, uh, the plane hit a bit of turbulence, which the co-pilot who was flying the plane at the time controlled it, hit a bit of turbulence again, and the the co-pilot was trying to control it. Um, the plane started to bank to the left, and that means just starting to roll to the left. Um, and it continued to roll, and within, the pilots had 12 seconds to react, wow. because it was flying so low it was, as it's coming to landing. Um, within seconds, the plane inverted upside down, and um, it hit the, um, the hills uh, close to, um, uh, close to uh, Pittsburgh, I think. And all, everyone on board died, sadly. John Cox was in the area, coincidentally, when he got the call. Um, so John tells me that, you know, Ishana could feel the heat. The plane was still burning when I got there. They found the black box within three days. And, and um, or oh, within three days, they, they found the black box. They were able to analyze the data and they knew the rudder, which is the part that flips uh, on the back of the tail, had been turned to the maximum position on one angle, and and it had to be uh, that for the plane to have taken that trajectory and crash. So from day three up to five years, the team had to figure out what went wrong and why why was the rudder um, turning that position. and and what John talks about is so I was asking John say how how does the team solve this problem What's the mindset What's the framework How do you stay uh, focused on solving these problems And what he said was he The beauty of that team, which is a cross-functional team, so you have air traffic controllers, you have the the manufacturer of the aircraft, you have the operator, you have the pilots union, um, you have all these people and, and people like John. You have all these people who are coming into the table to truly understand what the root cause is, but they all come from a position of... It better not be my fault. So right. there is this, <laughs> this positioning of we really want to know what finds what, what went wrong, but we don't want to, you know, to be our fault. Um, and through that process, the real truth surfaces. So the real truth comes to the top. Um, and, um, and to go back to our story, what had happened was there's this small part that's the size of a soft can, uh, soft drink can. Um, that controls the the, the rudder um and when the pilot controls it so it's like a um it's got concentric uh, tubes, so it's like the telescope it's like the tripod the legs of a tripod uh, yeah. for your camera so it's got tubes that kind of extends within each other um now it works through hydraulics now when the pilot was trying to control this uh, this particular device had um a very tight tolerances so which were sorry I'm, I'm talking a little bit uh, manufacturing jargon now Shane, <laughs> Shane bear with me um, but in effect what it did was uh, through very rare manufacturing defect um, this thing jammed momentarily during the first time when the plane hit the turbulence and when it jammed what happened was the operation reversed because there were two tubes were coming in One was to deliver the pressure and the other one was to relieve the pressure. So when it jammed, the pressure became the reverse, the reverse became the pressure. In effect, the left became the right, the right became left. So imagine you're driving a car, Mm. right, and unbeknownst to you, the system goes, oh, well, now, when you turn left, I'm going to go right. But when you're flying at 350 kilometers an hour and you're so close to the ground uh, coming into landing and you don't know that left is right and right is left because the thing's jammed, um, you're, you're, you're trying to control. Catastrophic. to go. Yeah. Well, the, if the plane's going to the left, the pilot is trying to control it to turn to the right, but the plane is continuing to turn to the left. And um, and 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 within twelve seconds, you're not going to be able to uh, react or or solve that problem. So unfortunately, um, that was the cause of that. Um, So they solved that, but they also managed to use that thinking, which is an important point, to actually go back and solve another problem, uh, another air crash that had remained unsolved up until that point. So it's important when we solve one problem in business, how do you leverage that thinking? Um, to actually go and look at what are potentially, you know, areas where we are faced with the same problem. And then it's a matter of applying the same solution. So that's how you can get more bang for your buck, uh, so to speak.
0: Well, I think one of the things that the airline industry teaches us a lot about, um, and, and in many ways, anything that is highly regulated, whenever an issue does come up, you rarely ever see the same issue again. Um, across the sector. I mean, the airline is a good example. So every time I, I do watch airline uh, crash investigations, as someone who's nervous flying, whenever I see yeah. something, I go, how did they miss that? It's always this kind of balance of fear in a moment that they missed it or something happened, but also the, the sense of security going, okay, well, that will never happen again. Because once it's happened, that problem gets resolved and it doesn't get addressed. So if there is going to be an issue like that, it's not going to be the same issue I think that's something really powerful that comes out of this productivity conversation, which is when you are solving problems, number one, are you solving the right problem? And then once you've solved that problem, how do you make sure that you share the learning and the experience from that problem make sure that that learning can actually solve another set of problems that um, could prevent something similar uh, from happening again? Is that kind of what I'm hearing in this conversation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's how, um, you know these world-class manufacturers do because you know they would have you know easily multiple lines you know with similar machines um you know lane after lane so if you solve the problem for one machine then yeah, it's easy to think that you can um replicate across all the machines now that's pretty obvious uh but if you're a multi-site or if you if you've got you know offices in you know different different states or different countries how do, you, how do you have a forum where you can share what the learnings have been or what you have um, implemented and achieved out of it? Um, purely as a, a sharing thing, and then the other, the other state or the other country can pick that up if it is relevant. Um, so sharing, not because you just want to beat your chest up, but sharing for, you know, sharing is caring, right? Um, yeah. Somebody said
0: well that's but when I I wrote lead the room one of the things I talked about was how how we respond to failure and I think one of the, the big values that comes from an experience of failure is the ability to share that learning with other people so that other people don't have to experience that um, sometimes you have to learn things the hard way, um, and other times it's it's really valuable in learning from somebody else's experience. And I mean, this is just one of the of the many kind of concepts you're exploring um, in the book. Um, we had a conversation a few weeks ago now, and you were you were telling me this kind of metaphor around um, turtle eggs, and I'm I'm interested to hear is it turtle <laughs> eggs? Did I get that right? I'm interested. If you, if you we, yes,
1: it is about turtle eggs, and if you didn't give me this opportunity, I was gonna shoehorn saying Jane, <laughs> there's one thing that I can't leave. Um, without sharing, because I think this is probably going to be, um, you know, the, the biggest takeaway from from this podcast. Uh, well, in my humble opinion, I think <laughs> it's the biggest takeaway. Um, it's, um, so I, I mentioned about uh, the four parts in my book. And the four parts are actually, uh, you know, I think they're four paradigm shifts, mm-hmm. even before people want to implement the 12 elements, because each part has got three elements. Um, so I present this paradigm shift so that people can get the mind in the right space before thinking about implementing the, um, uh, the elements to follow, the chapters to follow. So part two is about, the, the paradigm for part two um, is elephants versus turtles. And it, it, so part two, as we know, is about unlocking the hidden potential, the constraints which we've spoken about. Mm. So how do you identify, prioritize, and uh, solve? So elephants versus turtles, Um, Baby elephants, um, when they're born after 22 months of pregnancy, so the longest pregnancy for mammals, um, when they're born, they're being cared for by the female herd. So when elephants grow up, um, the the males, when they reach a certain age, um, they leave the herd and they go and live a solitary life. But all the all the girls stick to each other, right? So it'll be the grandma, the, the aunties, the sisters, um, the cousins. Are, so all the females stick to the herd. So when a baby elephant is born, that entire herd looks after the baby elephant. Um, that herd is known as allomothers, um, a terminology I learned um, when I was researching for the book. So all the mothers actually look after this um, baby calf to make sure that it it survives in, 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 the, um, in the wild. And the survival rate is something around 65%. So a third, unfortunately, um, die. If you compare that to um, turtle eggs or how turtles lay eggs, now sea turtles um, apparently swim close to 6,000 kilometers. Each way to get to the shore lay eggs and and swim back to the deep ocean Um, so they swim all that way they mate uh, close to the shore and the female then comes across uh, over to the the sandy beach digs a little hole and lays about 100 to 200 eggs per clutch covers it up and off she goes after about 60 days um, these um uh, so i was just gonna say turtlings for some reason and i'm not sure whether they're hatchlings or hatchlings or turtlings but turtlings it is for this conversation uh, the little turtlings um surface to the top now they're programmed through their dna they know that they have to dash to the the, the water um but they also know that there are a lot of threats um So, you know, there are a lot of predators and, um, uh, you know, there are people who take um, turtle eggs. Um, So for some reason, they wait until nightfall to make the dash to the sea. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't help because if there's a lot of man-made light, they get confused and they go the wrong way, etc. Do you want to have a guess at um, at what is the percentage that actually makes it into the into the water and survive? I,
0: I would say it can't be super high. I, I no. grew up in Queensland. We grew up in Bundaberg, which is right near Repos, which is where basically where the turtles come up and lay their eggs. So I've watched right. this experience, and right. we, we grew up near the beach where you had to turn all your lights off at night because they would end up on the road. So I would yeah. I, I couldn't guess. It would be very small, I'm assuming.
1: It, yeah, 0.1%, Shane. That's one in 1,000 eggs um, that actually, you know, a a turtle hatchling actually um, makes it back into the sea and survive to become an adult turtle. So 65% versus 0.1%. So the paradigm is, um, uh, or or the thinking is, I've seen how businesses um, start projects like laying turtle eggs um and and what's going what happens is there are, you know there's you know people get so excited you know we want to do so much and it's all with the the, the right intention of you know let's fix all this um you know let's achieve all this and you know we've been a great place in three months or six months or 12 months um but what happens is we're laying so many turtle legs we haven't got that support team of the allo mothers like the elephants do and the 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 fate of these projects is pretty much what happens to the eggs as well, right? You know, we don't finish them and, you know, they, you know we run out of puff halfway through and only very few actually, um, you know, very few projects gets completed. So um, my, my question is, um, for anyone who's listening to this, think about the projects, you know, you and your team are starting. Um, are you laying turtle eggs or are you bringing up elephant calves? So be ruthless at prioritizing. Um, And there are many prioritizing techniques, but use any one of them to identify um, what are the core projects, initiatives that we need to lead in the next quarter, in the next six months, 12 months, because that's the only way that you can improve um, the success rate. And that's how best of the best companies do. So all I'm going to say is stop starting, start finishing.
0: Yeah, I love that because you've got this phrase that you 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 say, which is um, solving day-to-day chaos doesn't improve year-on-year performance. Is this kind of the, where does this come from, this idea of prioritizing, making sure you're not just getting caught up in the day-to-day?
1: Um, kind of is, but it's almost like the preceding step before we even start solving the problem because what prevents from many businesses uh, doing this good work is that we get caught up in the day-to-day chaos. We get caught up in this daily cha- the, the vortex. Mm. Um, and for many businesses and teams, um, they stay in this cycle of just putting out spot fires day after day, month after month. Um, but when you look back to, you know, in, in retrospect, you haven't shifted the business into a better performing unit or better performing team. So staying on that hamster wheel of putting out spot fires it's not going to improve your overall business performance. So there are systems and mechanisms to actually reduce the day-to-day chaos. And you've got to put those things in first so that it gives you the opportunity and the, uh, the mental space and the physical resources and and to be able to go after these projects that we've been talking about, you know, um, you know the ones that we talk in part two of this book. How do you identify real improvement opportunities involving people, Um, how do you prioritise ruthlessly um, and um, how do you solve problems um, like an air crash investigator would do or a team of Mm. air crash investigators would do?
0: I love this conversation because I, I, I know we started talking about the idea of an, and it being in manufacturing, but the principles, I, you know, I often talk about the idea of principles and practices. The practices might look different. How you actually execute this in your organization in manufacturing may look different to how someone executes this in a service-based industry, but overarching principles remain exactly the same. And what I'm hearing in our conversation together is that productivity is actually hugely reliant on collaboration. And it's about getting input and perspective from other people. It's this curiosity that comes in rather than feeling like looking for someone to blame. We've all got something that we can see and contribute to help solve what might be the real problem. And when we solve that real problem, the learning from that gets spread across the organization. And it really is going to come down to getting out of that chaos and making sure we're prioritizing the right things um, that help us see the best results. Is that kind of a good takeaway from this conversation?
1: You said it much more elegantly than I ever would, uh, Shane. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So it's it's people and processes, right? So that's the the, the two fundamental um, elements that kind of contribute towards productivity. And um, one of my favorite authors, James Clear, and you and I have been fortunate enough to be in the same room uh, to listen to James Clear um, live. Now, in his book, uh, New York best selling book, um, Atomic Habits he says this phrase or it states this phrase that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. Yeah. Now, through my lens of productivity, that couldn't be more true. So what I help with um, is to put those systems in place because um, involving people, engaging people um, is all a system and a process. And if you follow the process, the results will come.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Ishan, this has been such a helpful conversation and I, I'm um would love to obviously encourage people to Jump into LinkedIn and connect with you. You can get all these details in the show notes. Um, connect with you on LinkedIn. Check out your book, Advance, um, which is 12 Essential Steps to Supercharge Productivity and Profitability, uh, which you can find at advancebook.com.au. And uh, I'll put every bit of detail that's required to reach out and connect with you, Sean, because again, it's it's a super helpful um, you know piece of work that you're doing. And I know it's going to be really valuable for a lot of businesses and a lot of leaders. So thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Absolutely um, had fun, Shane. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Stay well, stay safe and uh, advance.
0: That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.